You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Live, a conversation about the Disney animated canon in chronological order. Today we welcome all centaurs, pegasi, mushrooms, fish, even sound waves, celloists, harpists, conductors, highbrow, lowbrow, however you identify, you're welcome into our little conversation about Disney's third animated film, Fantasia. Released in 1940, here I thought we had reached a film untouchable by Disney's unsatiable befoul all their animated properties by turning them live action. Walt Disney himself said during the production of Fantasia, I defy anybody to go out and shoot centaurs or gods making a storm. That's our medium, and that's how I feel about this. But alas, Wikipedia did remind me of Disney's The Sorcerer's Apprentice, starring (laughs) Nicolas Cage and directed by Jerry Buckheimer, proving that nothing is safe. But Dr. Michael Farmer and I will yet do our best to fight back the darkness, doing our bit to increase everyone's enjoyment of these animated films. So, how you doing there, Michael? I'm pretty good. It, it, it occurs to me these live-action films are kind of like the brooms from The Sorcerer's Apprentice. They just keep multiplying. <laughs> That's a very good... Uh, yes, I agree. I had oh, hoped man. when The Sorcerer's Apprentice flopped uh, that we wouldn't have any more of these live-action films. I thought maybe that was going to be the end of it, but... Uh... Uh, it shows you what a Pollyanna I am. Did you see that movie? <laughs> no, I really had no memory of it whatsoever until I saw Wikipedia. It, so, it sounds no. like something Nicolas Cage cooked up in a cocaine frenzy, doesn't it? I mean, it, <laughs> like, I don't know how that really movie does. got greenlit. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Oh, my goodness. No, I just I don't understand. I cannot understand. <laughs> Should we? The So I would say The Sorcerer's Apprentice is probably the most famous part of the Fantasia movie, um, both just because it's a, it, it has Mickey Mouse, a recognizable character, and also because um, when Fantasia 2000 came out, they, they, reused, they reused this segment. So right. I would think both of those probably added to the popularity. Plus the Disney with the wizard's hat on is, um, or the sorcerer's hats on is, is used, I think, pretty widely in the theme parks and stuff, right? Well, um, at uh, I always want to call it MGM Studios, which is the the original name of it. It's called Disney's Hollywood Studios now. It's the third theme park at Walt Disney World. They used to have they they put it in in like 2000. This giant sorcerer's hat right in the middle of the park, which mm. I know you haven't been there, so I, let me know if I'm not being clear enough. But it used to be when you would come into the park, you would be able to look forward and see a replication of Grauman's Chinese Theater. Uh, which is mm-hmm. where where the great movie ride is, and and one of the centerpieces of the great movie ride is actually a uh, a Fantasia scene, but um, that that hat just blocked the way into that into that theater, and uh, it was very controversial. So when they removed it four or five years ago, I think everybody was pretty happy. Yeah, they didn't just turn it into like a cone for cars. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised they didn't. They sold uh, like trading pins in it, I think, because you know, God forbid there be a square inch in Disney World that's not selling something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The movie started with the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Did you know that? 
Yes, I did. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So um, people were tired of writing Mickey Mouse cartoons because I, I don't know how many of the Mickey Mouse shorts you've seen, but uh, when he's alone, they're not terribly funny because Mickey Mouse isn't a sociopath and sociopaths and idiots are what make good cartoons, right? Yes. So, so once once Donald gets invented, who is a sociopath, and once Goofy gets invented, who is an idiot, it's it's very hard. You you don't see a lot of Mickey Mouse cartoons that don't have one or both of them in it. Often often both of them. Um, but Walt loved Mickey, and and I think most people most people see Mickey as a as a kind of extension of Walt Disney. I think there's probably problems with that, but whatever. Um, so he wanted people to write more for Mickey Mouse, and so he came up with this idea of taking a well-known, relatively well-known piece of classical music, that is The, the Sorcerer's Apprentice by, uh, I, I meant to write down the name of the composer, but now, is it Dukakis? Yeah, I believe that's right. I actually, I... You came prepared. I did write it down. I did. <laughs> yeah, I'm so prepared. Um, except I don't know how to pronounce any of these names. But I, I'll do what I can. Um, um, but but so yes. They, they wanted to take this this piece by Dukakis, which is um, itself based on a poem by the uh, the German poet, uh Goethe, which is a name that I have always protested because there's no R in it. There's no reason it should be pronounced Goethe, but that's how it's pronounced. So they, he he wanted them to take this this piece by Dukakis and um and and make a Mickey Mouse cartoon around it. So he happened to be eating dinner somewhere, and the famous he's like celebrity conductor uh, Leopold Stokowski came in and started talking to him and he told him about his plan and Stokowski said let me let me conduct this for you so they 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 you know Stokowski comes out to uh, to Los Angeles and uh, I, I I think they did it in the middle of the night they did it from like midnight to 5 a.m them conducting him him conducting the score for uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice and by this time it was costing so much money it would have been like the most expensive silly symphonies ever uh uh and and disney decided the only way he was going to make any money on it was to combine it with other pieces that did similar things and that's how fantasia came about all all in an opportunity all, all in an effort to get people to pay attention to mickey mouse again yeah which is pretty uh pretty interesting pretty telling i guess but also like what a what a coming together of two um two popular minds at the, you know, at the, in that time in 1940 with Disney and, uh, Leopold, uh, how'd you pronounce his name? Stokowski? I pronounced it Stokowski cause that's, I watched a little documentary on Fantasia and I think that's how they pronounced it. But, okay. uh, I've, I've always wanted to say Stokowski. Yeah. I want to say Stokowski because in the, uh, the, the Disney biography, um, they said that some of the animators were joking around and be, when they were coming up with the names for it and calling it uh, Hybrowski by Stokowski, <laughs> which maybe maybe just works better written. Um, Hybrowski, that's, gr- that's great. Yeah. But yeah, he was a very... Uh, I think the, the partnership um, is interesting and I think uh, just... I think they were both getting something out of it. I think Stokowski was really trying to popularize um, classical music. And that was kind of his, what he was popular for um, was kind of bringing it to the masses. And Disney was trying to 
just keep pushing animation to new new levels and new heights, I guess. And so he, uh, they both got something out of the partnership. You know, Disney gets to bring it a little, bring animation to maybe a, a more uh, fine art or highbrow um, type of audience with, or like a seal of approval, I guess, by having uh, Stakowski there. And and, uh, and then he gets to, you know, the, the masses um, with Disney. Well, and I didn't, I didn't know this, um, and and it still seems a little false to me. So maybe I'm wrong, but I, I this is what I heard in the documentary that Disney was already flirting with high culture just because there were so many innovations in these full length animated movies mm-hmm. that um, that he he already kind of had one toe in that world, if not a full foot. So it th- this this maybe not, maybe wouldn't have been as weird as it maybe it would sound to us today because we, we're so accustomed to thinking of cartoons as, uh, as kitty fair. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, it seems to me what happened was, um, Walt Disney became so, uh, popular so quickly, uh, with, I mean, he was already, uh, well known and stuff with the silly symphonies and with Mickey mouse, obviously, but then, uh, snow white kind of propelled him to a new level and he kind of elevated through, I guess you would say, class and social status so quickly um, that he began quickly, you know, trying to catch up in a way. Um, you know, became interested in classical music and became interested in. I mean, his his horizons expanded as as anybody's would, right? Just by being rocketed to um, new opportunities in that way. I guess. Sure. Although I, I read that he he said something like I was never able to listen to classical music before, but now that now that there's cartoons with it, I can. <laughs> right. Well, let me let me see. I have a quote here um, from him where he was talking about uh, Takata and Fugue. Uh huh. Am I am I saying that right? Uh huh. Okay. So he said uh, about Takata and Fugue. He said our object is to reach the very people who would have walked out on this Takata and Fugue because they didn't understand it. I am one of those people, but when I understand it, I like it. There's like that that is such a Disney quote, isn't it? It is. <laughs> well, I you know, I I like the way he talks because I feel like I mean, he's just a you know, he's he speaks plainly, it's true. Um and he I mean, he came from more of that plain spoken background. He's, you know, Midwesterner as I am as well. Um, but, uh, there's a real, he's got a real ability to communicate still through it, you know? So, well, and I mean, there's, there's no doubt that a lot of people are familiar with, with classical pieces. They probably wouldn't otherwise know from watching Fantasia. Although I have to say they, they shot it right down the middle. I mean, these these were these were well loved classical pieces even before, even before they made the movie. Mm. Um, so it's not like it's not like they were doing anything um, super out of left field. But yeah. e- even so, I mean, my first exposure to all of these pieces was through Fantasia. Oh, mine as well. Yeah. Other Did than maybe Takata and Fugue, because you you know you hear Takata and Fugue in like silly horror movies and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I did see this when I was a kid. I, I don't have any any particular memory of it, but I know I watched it. 
Yeah. I remember when we were talking a few months ago, you said that, uh, I don't know if this was on the air or not, but you said that your memory of Fantasia was being both bored and frightened. Yeah. Depending on the part of the movie we're watching. Which sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I saw it. I was too young maybe to appreciate it when I first saw it. Not too young as in I was scarred or anything, but just too young as maybe I didn't appreciate it. I, I, um, I have seen it as an adult before the other day when I watched it, but I did not remember some of the, some of the sequences. And I, uh, yeah, I mean, mostly what stuck out to me was Night on Bald Mountain, which I didn't remember being as incredible as it is. And then The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which everybody knows. Yeah. Do you have anything yeah. in particular to say about The Sorcerer's Apprentice since we were already talking about it? Oh, yeah, it? we kind of started there, didn't we? My wife so, is terrified of this sequence. Yeah. Um, yeah, my my daughter did not, my five-year-old daughter did not like it at all. She, she didn't, um, yeah, she didn't like the... I think it's the intensity of the music more than the visuals on screen because the visuals on screen aren't really other than the, the, the Mickey beating the broom to death with an ax, yeah. which I guess could potentially be disturbing, but like, well, yeah, you also the, have that amazing shot of the shadows of the broom, the brooms mm-hmm. walking past. Yes. Yeah. The shadows in this are, and in, in some ways the main, feature you know like i mean at certain points they're definitely emphasized more than the characters themselves it's a very german Um, expressionist short in that way which makes sense because it's a german um composer and a german poet yeah so um yeah i didn't read i didn't read the poem i did go back and read the uh the translation i can't read in greek but the translation of the greek um story that the poem was based on and uh, that was interesting, but I didn't read the poem itself. If you, are you familiar with the poem? I'm not, and I didn't read. I didn't even know it was based on a Greek story. What, so, what what liberties does Disney take with with the with the story? Well, I think I'm not sure where the liberties happened because I don't know if it was in the poem or the original story. The original story um, was actually uh, it's called, or the translation of it was "The Liar," and it's about a character who. Um, goes to visit a, a, uh, a friend or a colleague who's been sick. And uh, the main character who's, who's recapping the story is not a believer in anything of the supernatural sort and feels that it's all lies. And so um, when he goes to visit this colleague, this colleague is sick. That's why he's going to visit. And there's several other uh, people there who are also visiting. And so they all spend... Uh, the time trying to convince him that the supernatural is real. And one of them tells the story of uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. And in, in that telling, uh, the the person who's telling the story is the apprentice. And so this is what happened to him um, when he was um, when he was apprenticing under an Egyptian uh, sorcerer. And then uh, he, the in his story, um, the the sorcerer always kept this spell to bring things to life a secret. And so it wasn't only brooms that could be brought to life. It was many different things that could be brought to life, but he would bring things to life uh, to do his own work for him, but he kept it a secret from the apprentice. And then finally one time he overheard him uh, saying the spell. And so then he was able to, to use it. But of course uh, he didn't know the, the way to stop the spell. And, and so, but other than that, it was quite similar the carrying of the water and, and all that. But it's a very short part 
of the of the overall narrative of this trying to convince him that the supernatural is real. That's interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. So, but yeah, then I didn't. I, I only because of lack of time. Even though we have a month to prepare for these, I I take my time to get started, and so sure, I didn't yeah. <laughs> shove all the preparation into a couple of days. I do it too. That's right. Yeah, so I didn't. I didn't get time to read the poem. I didn't even think to. I I, sh- I should have. But yeah. I don't know if I even have a copy of it. I I don't even know how long that poem is. I I have no idea either. I'm ashamed to say that most of... I, I don't know that much about Goethe, but almost everything I know about The Sorcerer's Apprentice is the cartoon. Yeah. Which... Okay, so getting back to the cartoon, the I'll tell you, the, the things that I really like in it are when um, there's the contrast of um, Mickey trying to bail the water out the window with all the many, many brooms throwing the water into the into the room. I find I found that very... I don't know. There's something about that just really, I I liked it. <laughs> yeah, the, and, and I mean, the, it's, fu- it's the futileness of it, or I, I don't know, just the contrast of those two. It's funny and scary at the same time, right? I, like because mm-hmm. it's Mickey Mouse, because he's this everyman, you feel for him, and you recognize that he has gotten himself into a ridiculous situation because he's crossed the boundaries. But I mean, if it weren't Mickey Mouse, there'd be a real menace there. Yeah. You know, you know, Mickey Mouse isn't going to drown. That's right. Although, man. Yeah. Unless you're five. <laughs> if you're five, you're worried for him. Did so. you know that Marx uses The Sorcerer's Apprentice as his illustration of the crisis of overproduction in the Communist Manifesto? <laughs> You'll have to explain that to me. I don't... The, the crisis of overproduction is the is the um, the ultimate end of capitalism. And, and please, if we have any socialists listening to this please feel free to correct me because i'm you know i'm not a marx scholar but the the crisis of overproduction says that as as goods get cheaper and cheaper the market's going to be flooded with them to the point where the the people who are producing them are going to start losing money on them and that's going to be the that's going to be one way that capitalism declines or ends so that's called the crisis of overproduction and so mark says it's like the uh it's like the brooms continually throwing water which is great when you have to teach the communist manifesto because all the students know this sequence and all you got to do is say but in Marx, mickey mouse drowns (laughs) (laughs) yeah because there's no sorcerer to come and save the day at the end. That's right. Yeah, it would require some sort of some sort of divine intervention to save capitalism, hmm. um, which of course Marx doesn't believe in. Yeah, we haven't talked about how the sorcerer's name is Yensid, which is Disney backwards. <laughs> right. And supposedly, um, you know how he raises his eye at the end of the at the end of the short. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is apparently based on something Walt Disney did. Yeah, a Disney mannerism there. Yeah. So I don't know what else there is to say about it, really. I I, I like it. I think it's it's uh yeah. It's I, I like the music. I like the I like the animation on it. It's good. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's not the best. It's not the best sequence in the movie. It's completely understandable why it's the one everybody remembers. But I I think it's yeah. I mean, we so maybe, I did I yeah. did uh, at one point they they had considered. Uh, putting dopey in the in the lead role oh thank god they didn't do that (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah 
I hate Dopey. I, I mean, I know we went <laughs> know, over this on Snow White. I just <laughs> it actually bothers me so much. That's that's why I had to mention that little I, that, that tidbit. I think they also consider doing Donald. Um, and, yeah. and in fact, there's a there's a, a movie, a 3D movie, The Magic Kingdom, in which Donald does get a hold of the hat and gets himself into all sorts of trouble. Mm. Yeah. But we'll get more than enough Donald Duck in a few months when we when we watch the Spanish movies, the South yeah, American that's movies. That's right. I'm really looking forward to those. I've I've I'm not familiar with them at all. So Saludos yeah. Amigos is is stranger than Fantasia in its way. It's 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 a really weird movie. But we'll we'll get there when we get there. Yeah, I guess also yeah when we get there we get there. But I think um, some of the some of the pieces in those package films like um, uh, Peter and the Wolf, for example, were actually so Fantasia was envisioned as being a like an ongoing like basically forever playing sort of movie where they would just change the pieces um, from time to time. And then so you could keep going back and it would continually be a new experience. And so um, when it didn't do well enough commercially for that to happen, uh, that kind of got dropped. But um, I think some of those, some of the ideas that they had for what, for pieces that they could do did get recycled into those, um, into those package shorts that we'll get to yeah it's it's too bad too because it that that could have been a really interesting ongoing series oh i totally agree i i that's one of those like misses in history that you think oh man what what would have happened like what you know where where would animation be or where would you know classical music be or whatever you know like if if that had had been a thing that actually happened you can blame world war ii so it's yet another terrible effect of the nazis probably yes. not not even close to yeah. the worst thing they did but still yeah <laughs> <laughs> i would say that's a fair, <laughs> yeah. fair, fair fairly minor in terms of their many crimes <laughs> against humanity yeah but definitely yeah it was that and it was also um you know, we're so used to now of um, theaters really uh, having the nicest sort of uh, experience as far as like the immersive sound and, you know, the surround sound and stuff. But the Fantasia really was the was the start of all that. Disney, again, as we've, we've talked about in the past, is uh, such a interested in so much more than the visuals on the screen. He's interested in the entire experience of of going to the movie and. Um, so actually in, had his people um, invent the, you know, what we would think of nowadays as the, the beginning of surround sound uh, for this. So the first, you know, sort of stereophonic recordings and um, in order to, in order for a theater to show uh, Fantasia, they had to have this special uh, fan sound equipment installed uh, before the theater could even show it. And so uh, lots of lots of things like that that also came out of this movie did you did you know there was a plan to pump smells into the into the theater too to to match the uh to match the stuff going on on screen yeah i did know that disney was always interested in uh trying to figure out how to yeah how to (laughs) how to conquer those last few senses i guess that he wasn't you know that he wasn't yet reaching so. well it's interesting because they do it at the theme parks i mean the the movies at the theme parks are they call them 4d and so mm-hmm. to, to return to that donald duck movie which is called mickey's philharmagic uh 
Um, he, 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 Donald Duck, don't worry about the plot, but he ends up going through all the uh, Disney Renaissance pictures. So he goes through Beauty and the Beast and The Little Mermaid. You can tell when this movie was was created. Um, but, for example, when they go through uh, Aladdin, they pump some sort of Arabic-smelling perfume into the room. And when yeah. when he ends up in The Sorcerer's Apprentice, they drop... Uh, they drop uh, uh, bubbles from the top of the room and spray you. The the the, uh, the chair in front of you sprays water in your face. Uh, and it's a 3D movie too, so at the same time you've got you've got Donald Duck reaching out into your face and things like that. So, yeah. like it, it's interesting that they they were finally able to do this 50 years later because they own the theater. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So much of. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing with Disney, right? Like that's, that's what, you know, love him or hate him. That's the thing is creating your own sort of reality and, um, you know, owning the whole thing so that you can, so that you can do it. I mean, that's the theme parks. That's, you know, like, like you just said, like having the theater, it's all about having that control and that power to be able to do whatever your mind imagines. So. I mean, which is exactly what's fun about the theme parks is that you, mm-hmm. you, you are stuck in this world, series of worlds, I suppose. Yeah. So at the beginning, they introduce them as there's... Uh, I'm sorry, I forget the name of the narrator of this thing. Do you remember? Deems uh, Taylor. Okay. And I guess he was known at the time, but I don't know him. Uh, but anyway, he had uh, he says that there's there's three kinds here. There's there's the ones that tell a story, which would be like what we were just talking about with the Sorcerer's Apprentice. And then there's one that he call, he says are definite pictures. And then there's three, which is music for its own sake or absolute music. And so... Um, I guess as we go through them, we could kind of maybe comment on on how they fall into those categories as well, if if we find that interesting to to comment on. Well, certainly, certainly the Takata and Fugue that opens the opens the movie is that absolute music, and that's that's really the only absolute music that we see. So you get you get these abstract shapes, and they actually hired an outside artist. Um, this guy Oscar Fischinger. My, I don't, you know, listeners to the Christian Humanist podcast will know how bad my German is, so I, I apologize if it's if it's not pronounced Fischinger. But uh, anyway, he was a uh, he was an animator in Germany who did all these abstract movies. So the the movies wouldn't have a plot or anything; they'd just be abstract shapes, kind of interacting. And when he did that for Takata and Fugue, Disney hated it because it was too abstract. And that's why you that's why you get. Um, that's why you get semi-abstract things in Takata and Fugue, like those lines turn into violin bows. Right. And and uh, you have those rolling hills. Disney apparently put the sky behind the rolling hills. The very Salvador Dali, uh, yeah. I thought, rolling hills. Yeah, Salvador Dali or, I, I don't know, something about it made me think of like uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus, too. I could see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, 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 had a similar, it had a similar quality. Yeah, I don't know if it was the colors or what it was, what it was exactly, but that's what popped in my mind. Yeah, so yeah, Disney even as he's as even as he reaches for the abstract is too much of a uh, 
uh, what's it? Repre- representation, rep- represental, what's, what's rep- the word? Representationalist, <laughs> I guess is the yes. word. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's what I'm reaching for. Uh, yes. I, I will say, uh, Takata and Fugue is my least favorite, my least favorite of the, um, of the shorts. I don't, I don't see it as doing anything that's all that interesting. Did you, did you yeah. enjoy it? I was really surprised at how much time they spent not in animation, but uh, actually filming various parts of the of the actual orchestra playing. Uh huh. Because well, I felt what, like a, a lot of it was that. Well, what Taylor says at the beginning is this is supposed to replicate your experience when you go to a classical music concert, which is you you start by thinking about the uh, about the musicians, and you end up thinking about absolute music to use that that wonderful phrase he uses yeah i'm not sure that's my experience i was that was the next question i was going to ask is that is that what you experience when you i, I assume you've gone to some i have concerts. yeah I, I i don't know i i never thought about it that way it is true that you can only look at the orchestra for so long unless there's somebody doing something truly ridiculous the uh the concert master at the saint paul chamber orchestra uh gets super into it and he's fun to watch yeah but i i do always get the sense that i should be sitting back and closing my eyes but i'm afraid i'll fall asleep and start snoring (laughs) (laughs) yeah So then uh, they follow that with the Nutcracker. A piece everybody knows, right? Yeah, because of Mannheim Steamroller. Popularized <laughs> it. Were you, uh, were you amused to hear him say that nobody performs the ballet anymore? <laughs> yes, I was, I was amused by two parts in this. So this, yeah, this, I, don't, I don't find him to be a very reliable um, narrator. Because first of all, he said nobody performs anymore, which I didn't understand how that could possibly be true and then um he's he's basically like as for the nutcracker he's not even here anymore which that is technically true but this is very much still a ballet and you still have the the chinese dance and the the russian dance like we must talk about the chinese dance uh but i I do want to defend him i don't know this because i you know i don't study classical music but I wonder if the Nutcracker had stopped being performed and then started again. Because certainly now every ballet in the country does the Nutcracker for two weeks at Christmas so children can go see the ballet. It's, it's most children's first ballet, I would, I would say. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and that might be true. I don't, yeah. Here's, so I here's something that might blow your mind. Um, Fantasia is closer in time to the Nutcracker suite than it is to us. Interesting. Yeah. That's that's amazing. So tell me, like, we were watching, we were watching it, and the mushrooms came out, and we slowly realized that they were Chinese caricatures, mm-hmm. and then I realized, oh, this is the Chinese dance, and it became a little less disturbing. But uh, as someone who, who's lived in China for ten years now, or ten, nine, 
Uh, yeah, eleven actually. There you go. Uh, I, I wondered. Um, I wondered if uh, if if you if you had anything to say about the Chinese dance. <laughs> um, only that I that that is very much a picture of China that I I would have had before living in China, but uh, it doesn't ring very true now at all. Um, you can find hats that are kind of in that style, but I think China's got such a a long uh, history that you know different, and it's so just fast. And there there's um, there's several different minority groups that people don't often think of when they think of China, um, with that each have their own cultures and their own uh, sort of you know histories and styles and things. So I I don't know exactly what what era of China this would be representing with, you know, with the, I mean, the mush, they're mushrooms, but you know, that, that kind of style of hat and the, the robes and I'm, I'm not, my Chinese history, even despite living here, isn't good enough to say like, Oh, that's actually a caricature of, of this era, but it's definitely not a caricature of the two thousands. I can say that much. <laughs> well, and in terms of nasty Asian stereotypes in Disney movies, we've got a few to come that are much worse than this. Yeah. This, I don't think, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I maybe, maybe it would be seen as offensive, but I feel like, um, I, I feel like it would be a stretch to be offended by it. They're obviously, they're, they're going, they're, they're trying to create, Oh, I don't know what it's, what it would be. It's, it's again, it's that like line between the abstract and the representational, but like they're using flowers and fish and, um, leaves and, uh, ice and, and things in order to, you know, represent something, but in an abstract sort of way, I guess. Right. Yeah. I would so, semi-abstract. This is one of yeah. those ones that doesn't really have a plot, but it suggests definite images. Yeah. And as far as the racial caricatures, you get it again with the Arabian dance with that, with that sexy goldfish. Yeah. It does the, the dance of the seven veils. By the way, do you know yeah. what, what the, the, the name of that, that sort of goldfish is in real life? I love this. I, I do. I have no idea. A fancy goldfish. <laughs> <laughs> and then you then you have the the flowers with the uh, the the Russian hats and and also um, I think they were supposed to be Dutch women. They they look oh, really? like stereotypical Dutch women to me. So okay. I mean you're when you're when you're playing with that many ethnicities, I, maybe it's not as uh, maybe it's not as troubling. <laughs> but when yeah, we first maybe. when we first saw the Chinese mushrooms, it was like holy cow. Yeah. No, I'd be, I would be interested to know. I mean, if, if like, you know, obviously I'm coming at it from a very different perspective. So I would, if, if people were, you know, finding those things uh, disturbing as far as I'd be, I'd, I'd be interested to, to understand why and to try and get that perspective. But I was wondering, I actually, for me, I was like, uh, because we had just watched Pinocchio, so much of this reminded me of Pinocchio. I mm. find that fancy goldfish to be very, similar in its flirtation and you know kind of curling its tail and stuff as uh um cleo cleo yeah uh and then uh the the dancers um were you know somewhat rep- re- uh, reminiscent of the uh the marionettes in the the pinocchio dance the got no strings on me yeah i would i would agree with that
The Nutcracker is interesting because I, I really think commercials have ruined the Nutcracker. I think it's impossible to hear Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy uh, without without like picturing children tiptoeing downstairs to, right. to, to see if Santa <laughs> ate their cookies. Or certainly the, the Russian dance has been so subsumed by Home Alone for me because they, they run through the airport to the to the sound of oh, the, yeah. the Russian dance. <laughs> yes. So, so to me, the Nutcracker is a, a piece that's so familiar as to be unhearable. Yeah, it's Although, definitely. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I we used uh, the Waltz of the Flowers in our wedding. I, I, I just think that's such a beautiful piece. And they, they do interesting things with it because it's one of the few se- sequences in the Nutcracker suite in the, the cartoon of it that doesn't have any flowers in it. That's the that's the last one. So it's the one with the uh, the fairies turning summer into fall. Hmm. Yeah, and I did like that. I liked the that it went through all the seasons in that way. Um, I guess particularly like something something about the fact that I associate the Nutcracker so strongly with winter and Christmas time to see it put to the whole the whole year and the seasons in that way. I thought was was interesting. It's interesting with several of these. They took they took pieces that have set narratives. The Nutcracker has a narrative. Um, Rite of Spring has a narrative, which it's it's very clear why they don't use. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, the Pastoral Symphony is the only Beethoven symphony that has a narrative, and they they assign different narratives to it. So you you take something like the Nutcracker Suite, which has a very familiar story, and they don't do anything with the story, and that's interesting to me. Why not just pick a different piece? Yeah. And it's again, like you said, like, like they, uh, these were pieces that were somewhat popular at the time. And so, and I, I mean, I know from my understanding, you know, Stokowski and, uh, Disney just spent hours together listening to records, um, you know, to, to pick the pieces and stuff. And so I don't know if it was, um, Disney's grasp of, uh, what people would like, what they were familiar with already. If it was, that's why he liked it because he was, you know, like in the same sort of, you know, popular genre or whatever. You know, I don't know. Uh, my guess is would would be that this is a hard sell anyway, right? This is a this is a weird movie. There'd never really been much like it. Uh, even today, it's not a movie. I think a lot of children enjoy it's it, I would say it's it's one of Disney's less popular movies in that sense even though there are really mm-hmm. famous sequences in it so if you're if you've got something that's a hard sell anyway you you probably need to make the music familiar enough to where it's not going to put more people off yeah the yeah. Fantasia 2000 does that too so Fantasia 2000 which I, we'll talk about because it's an official movie official mm-hmm. part of the feature canon um but they they um they use beethoven's fifth which is probably the most familiar and least hearable uh piece of classical music ever ever written and then they use like mm-hmm. rhapsody in blue which is another another yeah. really really famous piece so i mean i i think to some extent you've got to do that because yeah. otherwise well they use pomp and circumstance yeah they do use <laughs> pomp and circumstance that's right yeah so. And then they use a few that I, I you know, I, I'd never heard of some of the ones they use in Fantasia 2000. I'm not a, I'm not a huge classical music person, but I listen to classical music, and I'd never, I'd never heard of a couple of them. 
Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think they I think they do what they can. And and uh, I, I wonder, like Night on Bald Mountain, I wonder how many people would know that piece if not for Fantasia, because that's one I'm not sure I would have known if not for this. Yeah. But they pair it with Ava Maria, which is obviously pretty famous, right? Right. Yeah. Well, and it's not like Night on Bald Mountain is obscure, but it it's not it's not the Pastoral Symphony, it's not Dance of the Hours. Yeah. Rite of Spring's kind of a weird pick. I mean, 27 years before this is when there was a riot at the premiere of Rite of Spring. And now it's yeah, being turned I'm... into a cartoon. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about this one? Because when you said earlier that, uh, you know, it, it was there, there's a definite narrative to it and we get to that in a minute. I would, I, I'm not familiar enough to know any of that. So, so teach me, Michael. Rite of Spring is um, is a is a piece about like primal tribalism, and and so what what happens is it's a ballet, and a young woman is selected to be a sacrifice, and she dances herself to death, <laughs> which I think would not make a great Disney cartoon. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, although this is the this is the. Two out of three movies where we we just dodged the bullet on somebody dancing themselves to death. That's that's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, yeah. So so when it premiered, and I think was it I, maybe it was nineteen thirteen. I think it was nineteen thirteen. Um, there were there were riots, and I'm, I'm, I've heard that that's overblown, but uh, there were riots, so they must have been pretty upset about something. So that the mm. music is very jagged. It's not. It's not as it's not as easy to get into as the other pieces here, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Rite of Spring is not a to at least in 2017 does not feel like a difficult piece, but it is it is uh, dissonant in a lot of ways, and so it, I think it's probably the most daring choice in terms of the music, and incidentally, it's also the only piece where the composer was still alive. Right. So so Disney Disney had to go to Stravinsky and ask for permission, which he happily gave. And then I believe he hated the result. Uh, Stravinsky did not like what what happened, and he was against movies from that point on. Right. I'm not, I'm not well, sure. Oh, they they had to make edits to his score. That's what he didn't like. Right. Yeah, he didn't he didn't like how they edited the piece. Is what. So the the Neil Gabler uh, Walt Disney biography. The way that they talk about this this particular instance with uh, Stravinsky is um, he may have been trying to save some artistic credibility because it was really the music critics who were the harshest on the movie. Um, so there were, there were film critics who loved it and thought it was, you know, just, uh, and a, a huge leap forward in, in entertainment. But then a lot of the music critics, uh, deadpanned it. And so they were thinking it, it's hard to say exactly what his motivations were and kind of trying to separate it himself from it. But, um, he did, even after Fantasia was released, um, sell more pieces uh, to Disney uh, 
for him to be able to animate for sequels or whatever. And so uh, Disney commented that he couldn't have been too sore about it. That's probably true. And they, and they used Stravinsky in, in the best sequence in Fantasia 2000. They used the Firebird. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Right, right of Spring, um, I, I had always heard that it was kind of a silly use of that, but it's a, it's a brutal short, don't you think? Uh, yes, it is. With the man, the 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 dinosaur uh being eaten by the other dinosaur, I feel like is is pretty uh. Or actually, I wrote down in my notes that poor fish that's eaten by the. Yes. There's like a jellyfish. <laughs> it's like eyes get all big and terrified as it's being eaten alive. And it comes out of nowhere, right? Like the the fish is just swimming it, and and like, oh, well, this is pretty. And the jellyfish grabs him and pulls him up into its gaping maw. Oh, nature red in yeah. tooth and claw, huh? It, it is unsentimental. I mean, there's there's a lot of cute stuff in Fantasia, but there is nothing cute in the Red Spring section. Oh, I disagree. I think the Triceratops babies were really cute. All right. <laughs> they they reminded me a little bit of like Land Before Time. Yeah, I I I, th- I thought a little bit of Land Before Time too. I'm not sure if anybody who's not our age even knows what Land Before Time is. <laughs> what? There's like 29 of them. Uh, How could you not know them? Uh, um, I wonder. Yeah, they must have. They must have been influenced by this. Yeah, the, the Stegosaurus dying and like trying to kill the T Rex, and you're rooting for him, right? You don't want you T Rex yep. to win. Yeah, all the other herbivores are are looking on, you know. Yeah, they're they're flipped out. They're all they're all friends, even though they're different. different uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're all herbivores together. Well, maybe it's more sentimental than I than I thought. That march of death at the end, though, is also pretty brutal. Like, all the dinosaurs are just marching in the same direction as the Earth, like, overheats. and Yeah, I was, die, very, I was very interested in that, because it must have been before the meteor theory of the, the extinction of the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. They apparently worked really closely with uh, the Museum of Natural History. To, mm. to get this right. And Leonard Malton says he was shown this se- sequence in science class in high school. Like, cause mm. th- this reflected the best science of the day. I mean, now, nowadays we know, for example, that dinosaurs had feathers and, uh, and, and I, I don't think the drought theory is, a is, is, is held anymore. And, and certainly yeah. like the T-Rex and the Stegosaurus, the, the T-Rex lived closer to us than it did to the Stegosaurus. Yeah, but you know, in in terms of in terms of how dinosaurs moved and and like what caused their extinction and how the uh, how the evolution of life happened, all that reflected, I think, the science of the late 1930s pretty closely. Yeah, I remember reading an article several years ago um, about how our views of dinosaurs have changed, and and in some some ways have changed just based on the way that they put the skeletons together in the museums. Because um, they used to put them much uh, lower to the ground, um, and made them look a little more. Uh, uh, what's what's the word? Just kind of slow moving or something like that. And now, uh, if you go to museums, they're much more erect. It looks like they can move, you know, quicker and things like that. But I'll have to if I can find that article, I'll, I'll post it on the on the website. I don't know if I'll be able to. That was several years ago. I read that, but. Did I ever tell you that my youth pastor thought dinosaurs were a conspiracy theory? No, I haven't heard that one. 
Yeah, he was a he was a young Earth creationist, and, and young Earth creationists have to figure out something to do with the dinosaurs. And so yeah. he said that the the uh, paleontologists just found a bunch of bones and assembled them however they want because, and I think these are his exact words: "If you're paid to find a dinosaur, you find a dinosaur." <laughs> I'm not sure that reflects the best science of the day. <laughs> okay, so I want to stick on this science topic for just a minute because, again, going back to um, our, our our narrator, uh, he says before this piece that this comes from no one's imagination. This is coldly accurate. Coldly accurate. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> As though, so. Yeah, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist on whether or not dinosaur existed, but I, the idea that imagination plays no role in the sciences, I find very, um, yeah, just naive, I guess. It's it's offensive something. to the sciences, I think, because I, I, I keep returning to the theme parks, but that's fine because I don't think I talked about them at all uh, with Pinocchio. There used to be a wonderful ride at Epcot called uh, Journey into the Imagination. It still exists, but they stripped it. It's terrible now. Um, but Journey into the Imagination showed how imagination works not only in literature and art, but also in science and engineering and all these other fields. And I, I think that's important to keep in mind that like anytime you're dealing with something that's not right in front of you, and maybe even when you're dealing with something r- right in front of you, your imagination is the central faculty. I mean, like that, mm-hmm. that is a, that's an incredibly important thing. And it, it that, that struck me as, as scientific as well, that, that they would, uh, they would try to claim that um, that there's no imagination involved. Yeah, but I think they did that because they were trying to ward off the creationists. Did you Did you know that this this segment was supposed to end with uh, human beings? Uh, yeah, that that's that's mentioned in that Neil Gabriel book also. Yeah. So and I think I, th- I, I think they were trying to I think they were trying to avoid controversy by saying this is not the product of anybody's imagination. Because that yeah. seems that seems on the face of it to be a very uh, anti-Disney statement. Because they they Disney is is big on the imagination, right? Yes, yes. That, I actually wanted to know if you had any comments on that because in the uh, during Pinocchio, I had tried to you know just you know float the idea that maybe Disney is um, you know trying to just bring it, keep the idea of enchantment in a world that would be becoming increasingly disenchanted. But this idea seems like a very, you know, that no imagination was involved and that this is coldly scientific would seem to be a very disenchanted uh, view of the world to me. Well, which is interesting because you have, you have two pieces here that are almost explicitly about re-enchantment. The Nutcracker Suite with those fairies making the seasons change. And then Mm -hmm. Night on Bald Mountain. I mean, goodness gracious. It's personified evil. Yeah. Now's probably the time for me to say I wrote a book on the imagination. Imagination and Idealism and the works of John Updike. <laughs> this is I, the time to say that. I, I, I think I'll be yeah. interviewed about that on Christian Humanist Profiles in the near future. So if you're interested, if anybody's interested in hearing me blather on about the imagination, that's the that's the place where they can go. Oh, that's so exciting! Yeah, I, I can't wait. To, I can't wait to hear that. I can't I recommend should... anybody buy the book because it's like a hundred bucks. But academic, is it really? Yeah, academic books. They only uh, printed five hundred copies. Yeah, it's not on Kindle or anything. It is actually. Um, so if you've got a Kindle, I think you can get it for twenty-five dollars. But I still don't oh, recommend not... it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wrote it several years ago, and I already hate it. You know. 
Yeah, well, that's that's the way of all good art, I guess. <laughs> Disney was disappointed by Fantasia by the end, also. So. I'm sure he will. I'm sure. I mean, you work on something that hard for that long, and you gotta hate it by the end of it, because you, yeah. you must be only be able to see the things you left out or like the the flubs. And I, I actually think there's some pretty poorly animated sequences in Fantasia. Yeah. Um... <laughs> the ones that I have in mind are, I think, in our next one when we are. Let's see what's next here. Meeting the soundtrack or the pastoral symphony? Oh no, sorry, I was I was not thinking about the soundtrack. Um, yeah, so okay, so we have a uh, fifteen minute intermission. Did you take the intermission? <laughs> no, we we should have. Did you? <laughs> um, I got a snack. I didn't. You went I didn't... out to the lobby and got yourself some snacks. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't. I didn't actually time it to see if I was at fifteen minutes, but I did get. I did get a snack. Okay. By the way, that's um, all. That's all part of the vision Disney had for this, where like you would, the 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 film was originally shown in, in a road show, so it went to thirteen cities, and there'd be two showings, only two showings a day, and there were ushers like there are at a concert, and um, you would buy your seat in advance. Um, so the intermission's all part of that. Yeah. I mean, the movie's not as long as most movies that have intermissions, although at times it feels endless, doesn't it? Um, yeah, so, yeah, this I, I really like Fantasia, um, but even really liking it, I feel like it's a, it is a little long. And But I don't know, um, when we get to, yeah, Bald Mountain and Ava Maria, maybe, I'll, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about the length of it, but... Um, yeah, so after the after the intermission, we get a little freestyle jazz, uh-huh. which is nice. Uh huh. And then uh, and then we get the soundtrack. This has not aged well. No. And the reason it hasn't aged well is because your iTunes will do it. Do you you know what I mean? Like your your iTunes uh, has a visualization feature that at times looks very similar to Meet the Soundtrack, and so mm-hmm. we're very blasé about it. Uh, I appreciate it more when I thought, oh, they hand animated this. Yeah, that's true. So also, there's wondering... a bassoon fart joke, which you know, I, I'm convinced <laughs> the I'm convinced the bassoon was only invented to do fart jokes. <laughs> You're right. That is the highlight of the uh, of it. You know, Haydn, Haydn, I can't remember the symphony, but Haydn has a symphony where a bassoon farts. Like that's that's what it's supposed to be. I, I think you must play the bassoon for about 45 seconds before you realize it can make that noise. <laughs> yeah. There should be more bassoons in middle school bands, I guess. Yeah. Well, maybe that's why there's really... not. Yeah. Also, really... they're huge. I'm not, I'm not sure how many middle schoolers could carry one. That's true. So I tried to do a little research. I was wondering when uh, sound waves were first visualized, um, but I couldn't figure it out. I didn't. My research skills failed me. I was wondering if this was early on and like if people had even seen sound waves and things visualized like this or not. I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. So if anyone knows, our, our email address is before they were live at gmail.com and you can feel free to to talk to us there about anything that we've mentioned so far or just whatever's on your mind. We're happy to hear it.
Okay, so moving on. Okay, so this is what I was thinking when I was thinking of the the more poorly animated sequences was the we have the pastoral by Beethoven. I did I really didn't like how the male centaurs in particular like looked. Yeah, I thought about that too. And 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 when I was reading about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, I t- I talked about how um, Prince Charming is he's not Prince Charming. The prince is barely in that movie because adult males are really difficult to animate. The mm-hmm. other thing that's famously difficult to animate is horses. Mm. So you've got centaurs, which are half adult male and half horse, and and I I can't imagine. They, but yeah, I agree. They didn't look good. Yeah. And I was I was distracted by the the female centaurs' uh, anatomy as well. Like like I I thought that was really <laughs> strangely done. Yeah. Well, they have more <laughs> than the boys, which is I think part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Or which is maybe, oh, yeah. But to me, know. the thing about the pastoral symphony part is uh, Bacchus. Yeah. Right. Who cares what else happens when you've got <laughs> when when you've got a uh, a cartoon Bacchus coming out and getting his donkey drunk? Do you know Do you know what that donkey's name is? I don't. Jackus. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh. That comes from the original mythology, I'm sure. Yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> um, this kind of follows Beethoven's um, plot for the Pastoral Symphony. The Pastoral Symphony uh, is about a picnic that gets interrupted by a thunderstorm. So this is also about a picnic that gets interrupted by a thunderstorm, only they add in all this crazy uh, mythological stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and apparently that was really offensive to 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 music lovers, but I'm not sure I understand why. I don't get that either. I know, I know that a lot of music people don't like the Rite of Spring section, but I, hmm. I I didn't I didn't know they don't like the Pastoral Symphony. Uh, Victoria pointed out Hercules is is one of her favorites. She pointed out that. Uh, a lot of the design in Hercules is is coming out of this section. Yeah, I noticed that too. Yeah, um, which I think is really great that they're. I, th- I think it's great when Disney pays homage to itself. You know, like it's it's old enough. You know, like I mean, it's long running enough to do that to to where it can do that. And I just yeah, I think that the the Zeus when Zeus popped out in particular, I was like, oh. I mean, it doesn't look like the same Zeus, but like the square headedness of him, mm-hmm. um, really. Yeah, I was like, oh, it's it's very similar to the the way they animate Zeus and Hercules, even though, you know, the rest of his face is completely different, other than the square head. But I was very interested in the fact that Vulcan was not did not have a disability. I mean, first of all, they call him Vulcan, even though everybody else is Greek, so his name should be Hephaestus. Um, but uh, Hephaestus slash Vulcan is supposed to um, is supposed to be. I think he has a club foot or something. But that's his whole that's mm. his whole thing. Yeah. But I guess you know, have to erase people with disabilities. He's, yeah, he's the one making the the lightning bolt. That's right. Yeah, he's the he's okay. the blacksmith god. Okay. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. So when you say they call him Vulcan, you mean in the in the program, or I believe they, that Deems Taylor says Vulcan. At the, oh, does at the he? Beginning. Oh, okay, okay. All right. 
Uh, also, uh, th- this is another one like Rite of Spring, where if they'd gone, if they'd been a little bit more uh, faithful to the original stories, it would have been much darker. You know, uh, one of the things Bacchus is famous for is the the Bacchae, which are these uh, w- female worshippers of Bacchus, who, uh, at least in the Euripides play by that name, tear people to part with, uh, apart when they don't believe in, in, in Bacchus. They, they, they uh, not just kill people, but really violently, disgustingly kill them. Wow. It would have made for a very different segment. Yeah. Yeah, see, I'm not familiar with that because that's all left out of the Percy Jackson series as well. So. I, I can imagine. Uh, well, I mean, when we get to when we get to Hercules ten years from now, um, we'll have a we'll have a lot of fun talking about how that myth originally looks. Yeah, yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. So this, yeah. So this is is really not based on the way they do it. Based on any sort of, I mean, they're using the characters, but it's not based on any sort of actual story. No. No, oh, and, the, and the thing about Greek mythology is that it's adaptable. So, I mean, mm-hmm. there is it's not like there's a Bible. Um, people use those stories however they want. They change them around. They, you know, the people who are good guys in one in one telling are bad guys in another telling. I, so, I mean, you you can't really criticize you can't really criticize Disney for changing the mythology because the mythology is always changing anyway. I'm not sure any yeah. of the mythology ever made Bacchus a, you know, cute, lovable drunk, but. Okay, so um, after this is Dance of the Hours, which I find to be just genius. I really, I, I really, really enjoyed this part of the movie. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really hysterical. And and what I read is Dance of the Hours was by that time a uh, very dusty uh, piece. Like, I mean, it was it, it's one of those pieces you could no longer hear. In fact, I'm sure you like me as you were listening to it, heard, uh, hello, Mata, hello, Fada. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they take, they take this piece, which kind of needs to be kicked in the butt anyway. And, uh, they, they make it utterly ridiculous. Yes. And I, yeah, just from the very beginning with the, with the ostrich standing up and the, those little ostrich legs, I'm not a, I don't know if it's offensive to people who are really into ballet, but what a perfect <laughs> ballerina and ostriches! Uh-huh. Oh, I just, I love it. Yeah. And when a lot of the uh, a lot of the dance moves apparently come from actual productions of Dance of the Hours. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, they're faith. It's it's interesting where they choose to be faithful. 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes sometimes being faithful is the joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess the colors on this one are really, um, you know, meant to represent the hours as well. You know, it goes from uh, early morning type hour, like, uh, look of the light, the lighting and the coloring. And then when the, when the hippos come in, then it's, it's more of a, of a midday look. And then, uh, the elephants, you get kind of a sunset look. And then the, the, the alligators, you get the, the nighttime look. Did you think the alligators were trying to eat the other people or dance with them? Were like, were they in love? <laughs> were they in love with the elephants and the hippos or did they want to eat? them? <laughs> it was hard to tell. It was hard to tell. It seemed like it seemed like maybe just the one was was interested in dancing and the rest were interested in eating. Yeah. Even the alligators were a little scary, but I'm afraid of alligators. I lived in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of uh, before we were talking about how, you know, uh, the Hercules seemed to draw upon the pastoral ones. It'd be interesting. I'm sure somebody's done this somewhere, but to line up all the different um alligators <laughs> throughout all of disney's um you know because there's, there's been so many and and things that they have in common and things that things that they don't but these alligators were very thin compared to like the crocodile from peter pan or the ones yeah. from uh the ones from the rescuers yes yeah i agree and they wore those so. stylish capes <laughs> I, I really like the capes yeah, I just liked everything about this one. Yeah, I just, I, uh, it's delightful. It's it's really the only purely funny one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, it doesn't necessarily really tell a story per se, but definitely it's very um. Yeah, just it's definite pictures, I guess. So. And I, I think this is the other one everybody remembers. Yeah, it's very iconic. Just those the. <laughs> Hippos and elephants and, and tutus and uh, those little skinny alligators holding them up over their heads. It's, it's, there's a lot of uh, memorable images in this one. And they all have funny names. I'm looking at those. The, the ostrich's name is Madame Upanova, <laughs> Hyacinth Hippo, Elephant Sheen, like, or Elephant Shine, like Valenshine, and uh, Bin Alligator. Like Ben Ali Gator, maybe? I don't know. Maybe, yeah. None of this is in the movie, but Disney named all this stuff. and Yeah. Thanks Again, to the internet, a... we have access to it. Right. You spend so many hours with the thing, you have to <laughs> find ways to entertain yourself along the way, I guess. Well, I mean, you know, every second of this movie is 24 different, different pictures. Mm-hmm. And each one of them would have taken at least an hour or two. Yeah. So you, you just think about the number of man hours that go into making a movie like this and then how difficult it must have been to sync it with the music. Like, like everything yeah. had to be more or less perfect. Yeah. It's, it's a remarkable human achievement. This movie is. And it's all pre, I mean, nowadays, sinking is so much easier right you oh just, i would think so you know slide slide the i mean you you can do it in your in iMovie or whatever you know you just slide the soundtrack here or there and you know you can cut you can cut a second of or a frame of film no problem you know with just a with just a shortcut and you cut you know move stuff around and this is all you know 
yeah, I can't I can't imagine how they how they did that. Yeah, I I like literally don't. Did they did they have to slow the music down? Or but they couldn't even do that. I don't. I well, I guess they could have using tapes and stuff, but even that would have been so much more difficult than slowing it down today. I mean, I could easily make a second of of music last 24 seconds. Mm-hmm. But I, I, it, it really is an amazing achievement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of amazing achievements, I think, without a doubt, Night on Bald Mountain is the highlight. Yeah, I agree. It's so good. The the yeah. tech the textures of the of the animation like like I, I don't I don't know enough about what they did to maybe you do it from your book, um, but like the the thickness of the paint and the different sorts of textures throughout the the ghosts lo- look uh, really amazing. They look they they look like they're not quite there, you know, and, and you know, they're made of paint. Yeah, I agree. The whole thing is just, uh, really just striking. And, uh, goes without saying terrifying. Oh yes. So yeah. But I think that's what makes it so good is it's, it's very frightening, but it, it ends with, uh, you know, they, they mash these two, um, two different, songs together and so then it goes from it goes from the terrifying and then you get the those bells chiming and the you know the devil or whatever he is responding to that uh and then it goes into ava maria it's 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 i i found it incredibly moving it's probably the most religious moment in all these all these disney movies and and initially you know the that sequence was supposed to end with a with a statue of the Virgin Mary. Yeah. So the original il- illustrator who did a lot of the work on this is uh, a guy by the name of Kay Nielsen, um, who has. There's actually a book out of of his art, which I don't own, but if anybody wants to get it for me, I'd love to get it because like he's just he's a well-renowned uh, illustrator, and he did he did a lot of the work on this, and yeah, he had it even more overtly spiritual than it ended up being but even so it's it's uh um like you said it's it's definitely the most it's got to be the most christian moment in any of the in any of these works it seems like it to me and and uh that that last shot lasts forever probably too long but it's a pan too it's not even animated i think i think it's a long a single cell that the uh that the camera, I'm, I'm making hand motions like anybody can see me, but <laughs> I think the camera is panning along a long sheet rather than, um, rather than being yeah. animated. Yeah, you're right. Um, so they actually uh, cleared out a whole um, studio for this. It's like 220 feet long or something, and they just worked around the clock. Um, these huge long shifts with the uh, the multiplane camera. They had it on its on its side. Um, because they're doing the pan rather than the, the deep in. And um, they actually they had to do it 
three times this incredible amount of work and this incredible like long sequence. But the um, the first time it had uh, uh, they messed it up somehow. There's it it, uh, it wasn't even it wasn't smooth in the when they when they when they went back and watched it all. It wasn't smooth. That there was some herky jerkiness to it, so they had to redo it. And then there was an earthquake that upset it the second time. And so then they had to do it a third time. And uh, I guess it was, they were finishing it the night of uh, the premiere in New York. And oh my so they, gosh. Were fi- they were, yeah. So they're finishing it and there's, there's literally a motorcycle waiting outside uh, to grab the film and rush it to the airport and fly it to New York. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, What's cool yeah, about that a- shot to me is that, the, the bald mountain sequence is so frenetic. It's, you know, it constantly moving all directions at once. That's one of the things that makes it such an amazing piece of animation, the things they had to keep track of. It, it's just amazing. But Ave Maria is so still, which is what it needs to be, right? Because it's the it's the morning after this this horrible, evil event. Mm-hmm. It's, like the, it's like the morning after a big thunderstorm overnight, you know? Everything is very mm-hmm. quiet and, and clean. Yeah. Yeah, and you have the worshippers uh, in their line through the woods there, and um, yeah. So this this is the first. Uh, see, I think we earlier we talked about the length of, of Fantasia overall, and I disagree with you that this last part is is too long. I think it's perfect. Like I, I just I love it, and I I wonder if it it was separated, and you just watch this part of the sequence without watching everything before if it would be as affecting like i wonder if even though there's not a there's not a clear thread running through this whole movie um in some ways it 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 does feel connected in the the moving from the extremely abstract pure music at the beginning um into the you know the primordial stuff and the uh and then into the mythological and then you know ending here with you know actual like human worshipers and then uh this is the first time that human voices as far as i can tell human voices actually come in also and i just think it, it it ends in a very even as it's uh euphoric and um you know, spiritual. It's also very humane in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just I, I find all of that very very fascinating and very moving. I think the movie definitely needs to end with a sequence, and I think Night on Bald Mountain definitely needs to be followed by something like this. But I think with two hours of the movie ahead of it, having five minutes of Ave Maria is too much. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, fair enough. Especially yeah. since it's so still. I mean, so, nothing happens. There's no, there's no plot to Ave Maria. Mm-mm. It's it's just the the single shot. So yeah, I I, I think I think my frustration is how long the entire movie is, and then that makes this that makes this um this final sequence drag on a little bit for me. I think maybe mm. if I just watched Night on Bald Mountain and Ave Maria, it wouldn't feel so long. I feel like it connects a little bit to other Disney movies too. I feel like a lot of Disney movies end with the the heavenly sort of sounding choir. Uh-huh. singing uh um you know the one that's in my head is the one from Lo- from robin hood the love goes on and on but i feel like there's you know well snow white ends few... that way doesn't it uh, 
It's been two months since I've seen it. I don't remember. <laughs> sure. I'm thinking Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, which I'm not as familiar with as you are. So that'll that when I watch that one, I think it'll be pretty much like seeing it for the first time because I really have I have very little memory of Sleeping Beauty. Well, I'm interested to see what you think in it. I um I thought maybe Mary Blair, who is the the single woman who worked on disney's staff in the in the 40s I, I thought maybe she had something to do with this movie because some of the designs in the pastoral symphony look like her my wife is a mary blair super fan mm. um, but I, apparently she didn't work on it so we'll we'll get more, we'll get mary blair soon enough yeah yeah so overall anything else uh that you want to say about this movie as far as uh the way it shapes our imaginations or um, do you see any other themes arising out of it or that we didn't touch on yet or anything like that? I'm not sure I see anything overarching. Like you say, I think, I think you, you accept the movie as a movie, but like, like the movies that come after Bambi and before, uh, Cinderella, this is really a collection of shorts, each one of which you kind of have to take on its own as opposed to taking it as a whole. Um, yeah. But I, I think there's some really wonderful stuff here. Most of it in the second half of the movie. So Dance of the Hours, like you say, is great. Night on Bald Mountain is maybe the 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 best piece of animation produced in Walt Disney's lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then I, I love the, the Nutcracker sequence as well. Uh like I said, I, I could I could drop Takata and Fugue, I could definitely drop the soundtrack. But I think there's more hits than misses in this movie. I liked yeah. it more than I remembered liking it. Yeah. So interestingly, they um, when the when they were struggling financially with it, they did cut they did cut the movie down. Um, Walt Disney had nothing to do with it. It broke his heart to, that they were doing it. It was mostly the RKO distributor who did it. But isn't that funny that that they did to him what he did to Stravinsky? <laughs> yeah i think it's uh yeah that's that's a funny way to think about it i didn't think about it that way but yeah what did they cut um, you know um mostly uh the narr the the narration in between um but apparently they got it down to about 80 minutes it's about it's a it's a two-hour film and they got it down to 84 minutes or something like that um well they must have cut entire sequences right um i feel like there was uh I, I I forget now what it was. Um, yeah, there's the there's the making of Fantasia on YouTube. If anybody wants to go watch it, that's where I, that's where I learned this fact. I think. Um, so they uh, they I'm removed, sure the, exactly they removed the, the Takata and Fugue. Okay, so maybe you'd enjoy that version much better. <laughs> maybe so. I, although I like Deems Taylor being there, I I think I think his commentary is very helpful for people yeah. who are approaching these pieces as pieces for the first time. Yeah, I, I agree. Other than all the things that I said about where I found him to be a bit of a false narrator. Um, but as a non-classical music connoisseur, I, I know close to nothing. Um, I've, I've tried to broach the, um, the genre a few times, but it's, it's, it's difficult. What I really need, Michael, are your, um, you know, Christian alternative music primers, but for classical music, that's what I really need. You know, I can actually recommend a book, which is, uh, I don't know if it's pronounced Jan or Jan, but the last name is Swafford, 
S W A F F O R D. He has a mm-hmm. book called The Vintage Guide to Classical Music that that not only goes through the major composers but has a list in the back of pieces you should own in order to have a appropriate classical music collection. Hmm. So most of what I know about classical music comes from Swafford. But All right. I'll, if I'll you're, if you're interested out. in getting into it, that's that's where I would start. Yeah, I'll have to look into that. Uh, Before They Were Live is a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Thank you so much for listening to us. Uh, We invite you to continue the conversation by emailing us at beforetheywerelive at gmail.com. Please also visit us at our website, beforetheywere.live. You can also find us through the Mother Podcast website and Facebook. That's christianhumanist.org. I'm at the underscore alt on uh, Twitter, if you want to find me there as well. And as Disney probably said, let your live action be strong and your animation be stronger.